Matthew 27, verses 1 through 10. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is, is it not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money? So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Heavenly Father, we pray, O Lord, that you would be pleased to teach us this morning, that, Father, you would be pleased to uh, encourage us from your word. In some cases, O Father, we, we may even need a, a disciplinary action, O Father. But we know that, Father, it is those who you love, who you discipline, and you have set your love upon us in Christ Jesus. So, Father, as we make our way through this, this pilgrimage, we recognize, O oh, Father, there will be many times where you exercise your love by indeed uh, disciplining us. And as we look to your word, O oh, Father, we look uh, for you to do your work. We pray, O oh, Father, that you would encourage us, that you would lift us, that, oh, Father, you would make us more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would use uh, the sermon this morning, Father. Use uh, your word this morning, oh, Father, to those ends. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we pick up where we left off last time, uh, namely in how uh, to grow in loving and treasuring Jesus. And uh, we, uh, I don't think we're ever more like the holy angels in heaven than when we're loving and treasuring Jesus. Uh, we may think of the birth narratives along these lines this morning. We think of, uh, of the birth narrative of Christ as it is told in Luke chapter uh, 2, I believe it is where as Jesus is born, as Jesus enters into uh, this world, into this life, uh, no sooner has Jesus made passageway into this life than angels appear to lowly shepherds. And they demonstrate the fact that they indeed treasure Jesus, that they indeed love Jesus, 
with this angelic chorus of praise that these shepherds hear out in that field. We really are allowed to hear that story other than Christmas time, aren't we? We can do it in June. It'll work, right? I wonder what it was like to hear that, to hear that great chorus of those angels all singing. I wonder what that was like. It wouldn't have been as great as following the star back to where Jesus lay and seeing Christ. It wouldn't have been as great as that, would it? We might uh, get an Old Testament example of this if we think back of Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, in the year that King Uzziah died, he saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, and the train of his robe fills the entire temple. And he says that there are these angelic beings, these, to, to really our estimation, in many ways, uh, strange kind of beings, with six wings, Two, they cover their face. Two, they cover their feet. With two, they fly. And they demonstrate that they love and treasure Jesus with voices that are so powerful that they shake the foundation of the temple. Wonder what it's like to hear that. Well, it wouldn't be as great as gazing upon Jesus, now would it? As great as that would be. Now, in contrast to this disposition of loving and treasuring Jesus, in contrast to that, when we see that we're never more like the holy angels when, than when we're treasuring Jesus, than when we're loving Jesus, we can also, in contrast, see that we're really very much like the demonic realm when we're indifferent to Christ. When we're cold towards Christ. When... We're opposed to Christ. And this is indeed the disposition of the unbelieving heart. And we could think of some examples from Scripture of this as well. We just need to think about Jesus' earthly ministry. As Jesus embarks on His earthly ministry, very early on, who are the first to recognize Jesus? It's not the religious institution. It's the demonic realm, isn't it? I know who you are. You're the Holy Son of God. You're the Son of the Holy One. And other times they say, if you come to torment us before our time, very clearly these beings are opposed to Jesus. They have full knowledge of Jesus. They know who Jesus is. They know all the things that Jesus has done. They know all of these works that Jesus has performed, but they don't treasure Him. They don't value Him. And we might even think of, of Christ's uh, uh, summation, if you will, of the law of God. When He's asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? He says the greatest commandment is for us to love the Lord our God with what? All of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. I see lips moving. You know that one, don't you? And then Jesus goes on to say that this summarizes all of the law of God. So in other words, when we're loving Jesus, when we're treasuring Jesus, we're keeping every law of God. 
But when we're failing to do that, we're violating every single law of God, aren't we? So we see to treasure Jesus and to love Jesus is a, is, is a heavenly thing. And we see to be indifferent and cold to Jesus, uh, to even oppose Jesus, is a hellish thing. Now, with all of that in mind, uh, I countered a question that may have come up last week as I introduced this whole idea of loving and treasuring Jesus. And uh, that objection uh, would may go something like this. We'll say, well, this is, a, this is a great subject to take on, Rick. We just don't see how you can arrive at this subject uh, from the text we have just read. And if you recall last week, I brought that up uh, kind of kiddingly, like, well, Rick, that sounds like a great subject for a sermon, but we just read about Judas hanging himself. How do you get there from this text? And I won't go into all of the detail how we get there, uh, I'll just do it kind of quickly this morning. If you look at verse 9, Matthew is taking on, he's looking at all of the things that are taking place here. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says that all of this was to fulfill what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, quote, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him, on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now, when we look at these verses, notice we see the word price. Uh, there's a price in this text. Uh, what is the price? It's 30 pieces of silver. Uh, there's a lot of significance to this 30 pieces of silver, if you will. And in fact, uh, here, Matthew has a couple of Old Testament texts in mind. And if you recall, last week he has Zechariah 11 in mind, and he has Jeremiah 19 in mind. Uh, he doesn't mention Zechariah, but well, we looked at that last week. We see that's a common thing uh, for Jews in antiquity who are writing to only give the name of one prophet if they're quoting more than one. And we took an example from Mark chapter 1, which demonstrated that. And Matthew's assuming that we have this working understanding of Zechariah 11 and Jeremiah 19. And in Zechariah 11, we find the Lord calling Zechariah to do this sign act, if you will. Uh, Zechariah, here's what I want you to do for me. I want you to go pastor this flock. Uh, their name is the flock doomed for destruction. Uh, that would be a great name for the church marquee, wouldn't it? Uh, this is the flock doomed for destruction. Um, welcome. Uh, but that is, that is the assignment that Zechariah has given. He wants you to pastor this flock that's doomed for destruction. And uh, Zechariah uh, faithfully uh, shepherds this flock. And we're told that he drives three shepherds, uh, three false shepherds out of the flock, uh, faithfully undertakes the work. And one would think that the congregation would be grateful to the Lord for sending his man to uh, the congregation, for sending his shepherd to the congregation, that they would get behind Zechariah, that they'd be grateful for Zechariah's ministry. Uh, but instead, it's discovered that the congregation detests him. He's not welcome. And then in verses 12 and 13, Zechariah already determined to dissolve his relationship with this congregation. 
He says in verse 12, Then I said to them, that is the congregation, If it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages what? Guess what? 30 pieces of silver. Verse 13, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Sounds familiar. Sounds like Matthew's text, doesn't it? What's going on here is God has sent His prophet uh, to this congregation and they didn't value Him. Uh, there's significance to the 30 pieces of silver. If we were ancient Israelites, we would get this immediately. Uh, there's an old case law that Moses gave to uh, Israel in Exodus chapter 21, verse 32, that goes like this. If any of you own an ox, the ox goads the male or female slave of another, killing them, then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to destroy the ox and you're to make restitution. You're to pay the owner of the slave, guess what? 30 pieces of silver. What we get from that is that this is the market value of a common slave. Zechariah desires to square up with the congregation. If you, if you, you know, if, you, if it seems good to you, pay me my wages. If not, keep them. Okay, Zechariah, here's what, here's what we got for you. We got you 30 pieces of silver. That's, that's what we think of you, Zechariah. 30 pieces of silver. And what's the Lord say? You know what? Throw it back at them. Throw this insulting sum of money back at them. And the Jeremiah 19 text, I won't go into it uh, like I did last week, but the Jeremiah 19 text, which really is kind of encapsulating this, is a text of judgment. And Jeremiah is called by the Lord to pronounce uh, these various indictments and charges against apostate Israel, uh, of which one was the shedding of innocent blood. And in that context, it was the blood of their sons whom they were sacrificing to false gods. And you recall the object lesson that Jeremiah was given. He was to take a clay jar with the elders. He was to approach and proclaim these words of God. Then he was to take the clay jar. He was to throw it down on the cement. And he was to fracture it, destroy it beyond uh, any way of making reparation. So these two texts together, Matthew, he's putting these two texts together. He's looking at the things that are going on here. And he's saying it's in fulfillment of these things. Now, let's think about what's going on here. God has sent His Son to shepherd these people. What value has been placed on Jesus by these people? If we look at verses 9 and 10... They took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. Who did this thing? Well, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They gave the betrayer how much? 30 pieces of silver. 
The betrayer was happy to take. How much? 30 pieces of silver. You see, this text has everything to do with treasuring Jesus, doesn't it? It has everything to do with loving Jesus. Who are these people that did this thing? Are, are they heathens who don't know the Lord? Are they what we would call pagans who are godless? No, they're the religious institution of the day. One of them is one of the disciples who is regarded as one of the twelve. And what we gather from that is your walk with God and my walk with God is directly proportional to how we value and feel about Jesus. It's directly proportional to this. I am certain that these men prayed. I'm certain that these men went to church. I'm certain that these men read their Bibles. I'm certain that these men did good works. I'm also certain that they didn't love or value Jesus. And we can be certain of that too, can't we? This is how we arrive at our, our doctrine. I want you to see it. I want you to see it very clearly from the text so that you can go home and own it as your own. Now, last week I, I, uh, I made application of it. We could think of our own hearts this morning and we could ask ourselves the question, do we, do we love Jesus? Do we treasure Jesus? And I think that all of us, no matter how long we've been loving Jesus and treasuring Jesus, we could conceive of loving Him more, could we not? We could conceive of treasuring Him more, could we not? And that's what I want to do with the rest of the time we have together, is how do we do that? How do we do that? Even if we're sitting here this morning and we, we have to confess, you know, I, I, you know I, I don't think I even really know Jesus. Well, if you don't know Jesus, you can't really love Him or treasure Him. Okay, what do we do about that? Or someone might be saying, you know, my faith is really weak, and man, I got to say, you know, I, I don't know that I really, I don't know that I really treasure Jesus all that much. Okay, what do we do about that? Our text is full of things that we can do about that. And I gave you two of them last week. And the first is, we're going to treasure Jesus as we begin to learn more and more how certain His Word is. We see the certainty of Christ's Word in our text. Uh, let's just think about the uh, predictions that Jesus has been making. Last week, we went all the way back to chapter 20 where Jesus says, listen, uh, they were, they, Jesus and His disciples were headed to Jerusalem. And Jesus, Jesus says, listen, fellas, here's, here's the game plan. Uh, we're going to go to Jerusalem, and uh, I'm going to suffer under the hands of the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. They're going to hand me over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be crucified, and on the third day, I'm going to be raised. Is that what happened? That's exactly what happened, isn't it? And then as they got to Jerusalem and they neared, uh, the, the, on the very evening where Jesus was betrayed, Jesus tells his disciples, listen, tonight one of you is going to betray me. Did that happen? Sure, Judas betrayed him. And Jesus told Peter, listen, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And I shared my personal conviction 
last week that, you know, the first three words in our text this morning, Matthew 27, verses 1, when morning came, literally in the, in the original language, it means that the first rays of, of light, that's typically when the rooster crows, isn't it? I'm personally convinced that when that particular time came, when morning came, Peter had already heard the rooster crow and was convicted of his denials, and he is weeping. I think I can even hear him weeping when I read that verse. When morning came, Peter is weeping. In other words, this whole thing happened exactly the way Christ said it would, didn't it? Now, what's that got to do with growing and treasuring Jesus? It's got this to, grow, to do with it. As I said last week, we're, we're creatures who very much require security, don't we? We very much require security. And we reach for all kinds of things to get security from. We reach to this, we reach to that, we reach to this, we reach to that. And the problem is nothing in creation can carry the freight. Everything that's been given to us is going to be taken away from us. That's going to make for a real unstable bunch of people, isn't it? Unless we see from the text the certainty of Christ and His Word. Oh, there's something we can count on. And the more we see that we can count on Jesus, the more we see that we can count on His Word, the more that we see that His Word is true and certain and surely to come to pass, the greater we treasure His Word, don't we? Yeah. The second thing I gave you last week was in verse 2 of our text. They bound Him. They bound Him and they led Him away. Listen, be rest assured. The only reason they bound Him is because He went like this. There's no way they could have bound Christ if He would not have willingly let them bind Him. He's the sovereign creator of the world. They bound him. They bound him because he allowed them to bind him. He is imprisoned right now because he's willingly imprisoned. He's incarcerated right now because he's willingly incarcerated. Why? Because he's going to set jailbirds free. He's got criminals to save. He's come to save criminals. Criminals who don't yet love or treasure him. Well, they're going to one of these days. One of these days, they're going to look to the cross and they're going to see what he did, what he willingly did. And you know what's going to happen? The Holy Spirit's going to warm their hearts through the grace of the gospel. And this is going to cause them to begin to love Jesus. See, the first one really touches the treasuring part. The second one really, I think, touches the loving part. If we're not loving Jesus this morning, we don't understand the cross. We don't understand what's happening at the cross. We're going to be seeing a lot about that as we continue through Matthew's, Matthew's gospel. The third thing that I would give you this morning is believing in Him. Believing in Him. There's a lot of unbelief in our text this morning, isn't there? They don't value Jesus. They don't treasure Him because they don't believe Him. They don't believe in Him. Well, in one sense, they, they realize they're doing a criminal thing. They certainly realize they're doing a criminal thing. But his words just don't have any value. It's a common problem, isn't it? It's been going on ever since. 
What changes that? It's faith that changes that. And the, the real point, I could say a lot about that, but l let me just leave you with this. This faith is more than a mere mental assent of a few facts about the gospel. Uh, we can find a lot of people today that will say, uh, I believe in Jesus. And you can run through the list. You can say, okay, well, tell me, uh, do you believe Jesus was a real person who lived 2000, nearly 2,000 years ago? Yes, I believe that. Of course I believe that. Do you believe he lived a perfect, sinless life? Of course I believe that. Do you believe that he died on the cross for the sins of his people? Of course I believe that. Do you believe on the third day he was rose and then he ascended uh, 40 days later to the right hand of God the Father Almighty? Yes. You believe he's coming back in, in uh, judgment uh, one of these days he's going to return? Yes, I believe all of that. But the reason you're asking them is because you can't see any change in their life. The reason you're asking that is because you can't, they just still seem to be chasing after the things of the world. Why do we chase the things of the world? Because we believe the things of the world is what's going to make us happy. A person in possession of saving faith believes that Christ is going to make us happy. A person with saving faith believes that submission to Christ is what makes us happy. A person with saving faith believes that following God's law and living a life patterned after Christ is what makes us happy. A person with saving faith enjoys this, not in a perfect way, but in a progressively growing way. So what's wrong with the, the first uh, uh, cast of characters that I just mentioned who say they believe all this thing, all these things, but their lives not changed. What's wrong is they're mentally assenting. They're mere mentally assenting to the facts. In other words, they've heard these facts and they believe that these facts are true. Listen, the demons know these facts are true. They know all of the facts are true. They witnessed these things. What's the difference? They don't believe that their happiness is found in following Christ. They believe that their happiness is found in rebelling against Christ. So we see mere mental assent. If, if that kind of describes uh, our hearts this morning, we're in a terrible way. We're in a, we're in a terrible way. What do we do? Well, stay tuned. There's, there's, there's more. As we look to our text here, notice what Judas is doing. What is Judas up to? You know, there's, um, uh, in verse 3, he sees that Jesus is condemned. And if you have an ESV open, he, it reads, he changed his mind. If you have a King James translation open, it says he repented. Uh, don't get the idea that that's true saving repentance there. It's a repentance that should be repented of. It's not true saving repentance. He has a change of mind. And uh, you can almost hear him saying, uh-oh, what have I done? I can't believe what I've done. They're, they've condemned him. I, didn't, I, didn't, I, didn't, I, I really didn't intend for all that to happen. I'm going to see if I can fix it. I'm going to take this 30 pieces of silver. I'm going to go back to the to the temple and uh, we're going to see if we can fix this. And he goes back in verse 4. He says, I've sinned. He goes to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
It's this point where they should have pulled their glasses off and they would have said, what? Judas, what? Well, we need to call this whole thing off. What do they say? What's that to us? Judas, that's your problem. What is Judas trying to do here? He's trying to do what all unbelieving hearts try to do with their sin. He's trying to make atonement for his sin. He's trying to fix this himself. I'm going to fix it. I, I got a real mess going on here, but I'm going to fix it. At least I'm going to try to, I'm going to, try to lessen my guilt in it somehow. I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to wiggle out of this one if I can. Here, take, this, take these 30 pieces of silver. His conscience is struck for sure. He's, he's got to be in, in, in absolute agony. How do we know that? Because he hangs himself. They wouldn't take the money, so he throws it into the temple treasury. And then what does he do? He takes his life. There's a song that I love to play and sing, and it goes like this. What can take away my sin? And it answers, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Christ can atone for our sins. And that leads to the next thing of repentance. Judas here, he's, he's repenting with a repentance that needs repented of which I'm just quoting the King James translation of, of our scripture memory verse this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10. If you look in your bulletin at that verse, you'll notice that uh, the Apostle Paul is posing two things against each other, worldly grief and godly sorrow. Worldly grief and godly sorrow. And with that in mind... If you recall last week, I made mention of this. If you read verses 1 and 2 of Matthew 27, you know, when morning came, all the chief priests, the elders of the people, took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. They bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And if you skip to verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews, etc., etc. Notice the perfect flow of that. It flows perfectly. But in between verses 2 and 11, we have the story of Judas. It's inserted in there, almost in an abrupt fashion. And we should be asking, what's up with that? Why is, why is Matthew putting that there? Why has why the Holy Spirit put that story right there? And the obvious answer is because of the last story that's in Matthew 26. What is the last story at the end of Matthew 26, it's, it's the fall of Peter. And we have a comparison here of the fall of Peter and the fall of Judas. And we have textbook examples and a textbook commentary of what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 10. Judas gives us a textbook example of what worldly grief is. And he shows us where it leads. It leads to death. Paul says worldly grief leads to death. What is worldly grief? We, we might imagine Judas saying, I can't believe I did this. I just hate myself for what I've done. I can't believe I did this. The NIV says that he was remorseful, right? Is that what the way the NIV reads? 
He was remorseful. But where does he go with that? Does he go to God with that? He goes to the priests with that. So unlike David, if we think of Psalm 51, David probably was saying, I can't believe that I had this affair with Bathsheba. I can't believe that I killed her husband. I can't believe that I did all of this. But he doesn't go to the priests. He goes to God. And he says, against you have I sinned, and only you. That's an example of godly sorrow. David is looking to God to, one, fix it. He's not trying to fix it himself. He's looking to God to fix it. And two, he's looking to God to restore his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O Lord. Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be as white as snow. Not Judas. Hey, here's this, these, 30, these 30 pieces of silver and fellas, this guy's innocent. There's no vertical dimension to it. It's worldly regrets. It leads to death. Whereas godly sorrow, it produces repentance. Here we have Peter. Has Peter fallen permanently? No. Why? Peter really does love Jesus. Peter really does treasure Jesus. And we should be thankful that the Lord has given us this story because we see that if someone like Peter can fall so miserably, for one, we can recognize that we're capable of falling just as miserably. But secondly, and more importantly, the Lord picks him back up. Peter's not trying to make this thing right himself. The Lord does the unbelievable and picks him up. And that leads to the, the last thing I'll share with you. You want to treasure Jesus? You want to love Jesus? I can't think of one thing that'll do it more than this. Recognize he's willing to pick you up. The reason I say this is I got first-rate experience in this one. I remember going through a period of time early in my life where I was studying the law of God and I saw yeah, the law of God is a mirror when we look into it. What do we see? We see the hideousness of our nature. We see the hideousness of our sins as we look into the law of God. And I was seeing that. And I was seeing that. And I was seeing that. And I believed at that point, very much so, I needed saving. Something needed to be done. And it was something that I couldn't do for myself. It was something I was going to need God to do. And at this point in time, I recognized that Jesus was perfectly capable of saving me. But what I didn't yet believe was that he was willing to. That he was willing to. Because after all, the more I looked into the law, the more I saw how miserable I am. And I could think to myself, wait a second, I could understand why you're, you're I can understand why you want to save my Aunt Peg, but I cannot understand why you would want to save me. And when I finally realized from a couple texts of Scripture, and I want to read one to you, and it's in the King James translation. I want to read one to you. For thou, Lord, art good, and listen to this, 
and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. And I realized to not believe that promise would be to call God a liar. Then, then I began to love Jesus. You're willing to save a wretch like me? That's when my life changed. And I think some of you have your own story, don't you? And maybe some of us don't really have a story yet. And don't worry about your story. Don't worry about whether your story is as fantastic as the next person's story. Just worry about this. Do you believe Jesus is willing to save you? Take him at his promise. Take him at his promise. Confess. Father, I I confess before you that, you know, I have often loved everything that you've made. I've loved this. I've loved this. I've loved this. I've chased after this. I've chased after that. I've done all this. Instead of chasing hard after you, I confess this freely. Oh, Father, I come to you this morning. Fill my heart with love for you that I would treasure you. Make me like the holy angels in heaven because I've been like the devils in hell way way too long. In conclusion, I guess I'm going to give you one more in conclusion. I don't think you'll mind, though. If we want to love and treasure Jesus, we should stop once in a while and think about what Jesus is sparing us from. You ever stop to think about what Jesus is sparing us from? This will keep you from taking your salvation for granted. We're approximately 15 years away from two millennium of when these events we read about in Matthew 27 took place. Around 2030, 2033, scholars vary about those dates. We're about 15, 18 years away from it being 2,000 years since Judas betrayed Jesus, since Jesus went to the cross, since Peter denied him, since those chief priests wrongfully executed and shed innocent blood. How's Judas doing today? He is as lost this morning as he was 2,000 years ago. And he's not an hour short of getting out of it. It's never going to change. In contrast, Peter's been restored and he's enjoying heavenly bliss with Christ. The chief priests and the elders, those who remained unrepentant, they're with Judas. And as we think of these things, think about what Jesus is sparing us from. That'll lead us to loving him and treasuring him more. One of the reasons we fail to treasure him is we We forget all of this, or maybe we've never been instructed in all this in the first place. Oh, what a Savior we have. What a Savior. 
God's grace is available this morning for the taking. Let us take it. Heavenly Father, O Lord, we do desire, we come to you this morning, Father, with hearts that desire to love you more, that desire to treasure you more, that desire to honor you more. And we look to you, O Lord, for the grace. And we recognize, O Father, that the same Holy Spirit, which was motivating and empowering Jesus, has also been given to us. And, O Father, we pray that He will work in our hearts to love and treasure Jesus in greater and greater degrees, O Father. And we pray, O Father, that if there's anyone here this morning or anyone who will hear this message later who is yet to discover the treasure in Christ Jesus, who is yet to discover that Jesus is the pearl of great price, we pray, Lord, that you would be pleased to give faith and repentance to uh, that person, that you would do it even now, O Father. And, Lord, we pray that you would do this work of grace in our hearts, cause us to continue to love and treasure you more uh, by the hour and by the day, O Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.